Welcome to the History of the Mongols, episode 26, Tamerlane. So as I was writing the episode on legacy, I kept coming back to the next great nomadic conqueror, Tamerlane, because his rise to power dovetails almost perfectly with the collapse of the Mongol Empire. And for a whole host of reasons, it's easier to understand what followed if we consider Tamerlane's conquests as part of the reshaping of Central Asia begun by the collapse of the Mongol Empire. So for that reason, I decided that a podcast detailing the remarkable achievements and remarkable brutality of the last great nomadic conqueror was worthwhile. Although Tamerlane was not truly a Mongol, and certainly not a member of the Borogin family, he more than anyone else tried to reform the empire of Genghis Khan. As someone from outside the traditional ruling dynasties, and with no links to the prophets of Islam, appeals to the legacy of Genghis Khan provided Tamerlane with the legitimacy he needed to conquer and then rule. So who was Tamerlane? also known as Timur, by the way. You can take your pick about which version you prefer. I'm going to stick with Tamerlane to avoid any confusion with Temur Khan, Tug, and all the other Mongols with similar names. Well, Tamerlane was born in the 1320s or 1330s. Like Genghis Khan, we don't know the exact date. Into the Balas clan, who were one of the many Mongol clans that became part of Genghis's Mongol nation. By the 1330s, though, they had become established in Transoxiana, then part of the Chagatay Khanate. They had also adopted many of the local Turkic customs, and so are normally referred to as Turco-Mongol rather than Mongol. Tamerlane himself was born in the city of Kesh in modern-day Uzbekistan, where his family had a strong power base. We actually covered some of the events that led to his rise to power in the episode Crisis in the West, as they are closely tied to the collapse of the Chagatay Khanate. To summarise, in 1360, the ruler of the eastern half of the Chagatay Khanate, Tughlug Temur, a member of Genghis Khan's Borogin clan, invaded the Transoxiana home of Tamerlane's clan. Most of the emirs in the area agreed to support Tughlug, including young Tamerlane. His uncle, though, who controlled a large portion of the lands, opposed the invasion and was forced to flee. His lands were given to Tamerlane as reward for his support. However, Tamerlane refused to accept Tughlug's plan to impose his own son as governor of Transoxiana. And when Tughlug sent his troops in the next year, Tamerlane was able to repel this invasion with a smaller force. By now he had a considerable following, and after the death of Tughlug in 1363, Tamerlane was able to take advantage of the lack of legitimate power sources to extend his own reach over the western half of the Chagatay Khanate. With his brother-in-law Hussein, he successfully fought against Tulug's son until 1369, 
when Tamerlane was able to seize the key city of Samarkand and fight off a siege, cementing his control. Soon after that, though, the relationship between the brothers-in-law broke down. The centre of their power was in the ancient city of Balkh, and it seems that Tamerlane was more successful in generating support among the local nomad warriors from the city and the surrounding areas. Hussein, meanwhile, made himself unpopular with his heavy-handed administration. So in 1370, Tamerlane moved to take sole power. He brought the army he had gathered to besiege his brother-in-law at Balkh. On the second day, Tamerlane's forces were able to break into the town, leaving Hussein no choice but to surrender. He was subsequently murdered, although whether this was on Tamerlane's orders is not entirely clear. Now Tamerlane controlled all of Transoxiana, including the city of Samarkand, which would be his capital. It's interesting to note that Tamerlane never took on the title Khan. He believed that this was reserved for the direct descendants of Genghis. He preferred to be referred to as an Amir, or general. He did, though, marry Hussein's widow, who was a princess from Genghis's clan, to provide further legitimacy for his rule. To this point, he had carved out a place as one of the many rulers, duking it out in the middle decades of the 14th century for a piece of the Mongol Empire. But over the next 35 years, he would try to emulate Genghis as a conqueror, taking control over a huge area in Central Asia and the Middle East. These conquests had the dual effects of sweeping away the host of successor states that had sprung up since the fall of the Mongol Empire, and also crippling the power of the Golden Horde. So for that reason, they fit with the events we've been describing over the last few weeks. For the sake of clarity, I'll split these into three sections. First, the conquest of Persia, then the war with the Golden Horde, and finally, Tamerlane's other campaigns in India and the Middle East. As you'll see, the timelines of these various events overlap, but I thought it would be too confusing to move suddenly from one theatre to the next. So there is actually a decent gap between Tamerlane's consolidation of power and the invasion of Persia, during which time he consolidated his hold over Transoxiana and parts of eastern Iran. He began his first campaign in Persia in 1381 against the Kartid dynasty, who had their base in Herat. They had been allies previously, but Tamerlane had begun to distrust their building of fortifications in Herat, and apparently he was also being encouraged to invade by several powerful families who resented the Kartids, and as we'll see, Tamerlane needed no excuse to invade. Despite the city's strong fortifications, he had no difficulty in taking Herat. He destroyed the offending fortifications, but left the city and most of its population intact. He even agreed to release 2,000 prisoners of war, an unusually magnanimous gesture. 
the Khartids were allowed to remain in power as Tamerlane's vassals. But two years later, Herat was annexed after the discovery of a plot against his rule. And in 1396, the rest of the dynasty were murdered and their territory incorporated into Tamerlane's growing domains. Tamerlane then headed west through the Zagros Mountains and captured the town of Tehran, the capital of modern Iran, which surrendered and was treated mercifully. In 1383, he was called to deal with a rebellion in the city of Isfizar in Horazin. He quickly quashed the rebellion and exacted a heavy revenge, destroying the city and massacring the inhabitants. With this done, Tamerlane was free to march on another of the small successor states, the so-called Sistan Kingdom. Their capital, Zaranch, was sacked and severely damaged, and the country around devastated. On his return route towards his own lands in Transoxiana, Tamerlane tried to remove another of the remaining threats to his power. The Jailrids, who, as you'll remember, had been one of the key groups who played a role in the fall of the Ilkhanate 40 years earlier. He moved against their heartland in northern Iran, close to the border with modern Turkey and Iraq, but the Sultan was able to flee before Tamerlane arrived, so he had to settle for capturing the old Ilkhan capital, Sultanye. Content with the job he had done in subduing any threats, Tamerlane returned to spend the winter in his own capital, Samarkand. It should be stated that Tamerlane was not normally focused on outright conquest. He was often quite happy to maintain the existing power structures, provided he could rely on their compliance as vassals. In Iran, he was primarily interested in neutralising the many unstable and hostile states that might, theoretically, have been able to threaten his lands in Central Asia, as well as taking whatever plunder he could manage. The next phase of his invasion was actually delayed until 1387. In the time that he'd been absent, most of the territories had remained passive, so there was nothing to delay Tamerlane in moving south to sack the cities of Isfahan and Shiraz in the territory of the Muzaffrids. Although both were sacked easily, Isfahan rebelled against the policies of Tamerlane's tax collectors in 1388, and as a result, he returned to make an example of the city. His soldiers systematically massacred the population, apparently erecting pyramids of heads outside the walls as a warning to anyone passing by. One Persian historian records walking halfway round the distance of the walls, and in that time seeing 28 towers each containing more than 1,000 heads. Figures of 70,000 killed are sometimes quoted, and although we can't confirm their accuracy, Tamerlane was uncompromising in his brutality if he saw anything resembling resistance. The final expedition, which completed the conquest, did not come for another four years, in which the Muzaffrids, showed that even the brutality inflicted on their cities had not taught them a lesson. While Tamerlane was away, they reoccupied Shiraz 
and began to rebuild their power. However, in a lightning campaign beginning in 1392, Tamerlane shattered their resistance. Shiraz was captured again in March 1393, and this time Tamerlane did not allow the Muzafrids to retain power. Almost all their princes were executed. This left only one source of power remaining in Persia, the Jailarids in Baghdad. In only eight days, beginning in August 1393, Tamerlane swept northwest from Shiraz to Baghdad, surprising the Jalyarids. They tried to delay his approach by destroying bridges to the city, but he equipped his soldiers with wooden planks, allowing them to ford the Tigris and capture Baghdad without a fight. Sultan Ahmed was forced to flee to the protection of the Mamluks in Egypt. As with the Musafrids, the Sultan was able to return to Baghdad once Tamerlane retreated, and the governor he installed withdrew rather than fight. So it was not until 1399 or 1400, when the unrepentant Shah finally left the city entirely. The mere presence of Tamerlane campaigning in nearby Anatolia was enough to convince Ahmed to flee, this time to the Ottomans. His dynasty was done, and the conquest of Persia was complete. So the powers that had flourished in the chaotic decades after the fall of the Ilkhanate were effectively wiped from the map by Tamerlane. His impact on the Golden Horde was obviously less dramatic, but they too would never recover from the blows he struck. The man on the Golden Horde throne when Tamerlane emerged as a new force in Central Asia was Toktamish. He was, initially at least, an ally of Tamerlane. In fact, Tamerlane supported him as he asserted his control over the lands of the White and Golden Hordes, unifying the two. But if Tamerlane was expecting to get a pliant ally, then he was very much mistaken. Toktamish first launched a punitive raid against the Russian principalities and sacked Moscow in 1382 in revenge for the disastrous defeat the Horde had suffered at Kulikovo two years earlier. Once this was done, though, his ambitions turned to areas that brought him into direct conflict with Tamerlane, the Caucasus and western Iran, both areas that had been disputed territory going back to the original split of the empire under Genghis. In 1385, Toktamish made the first provocative move, raiding into northern Iran and plundering Tabriz, taking thousands of captives on the way. Two years later, he attempted an even more audacious move, attacking Transoxiana itself, the heartland of Tamerlane. He was ultimately driven back by poor weather, but he had succeeded in provoking his former ally to war. The so-called Toktamish-Timur War technically lasted until 1395, but fighting was very sporadic, as with many of Tamerlane's campaigns. In the first phase, Tamerlane's army of 100,000 advanced north almost 1,000 kilometres in search of his adversary. 
the two armies eventually clashed close to the bank of the Volga in southern Russia. The Battle of the Kondurcha River in 1391 showed that Tamerlane was the master of any battlefield he chose. The Horde army was put to flight, but crucially not destroyed. The two remained at war, but it was not until four years later that Tamerlane was able to land the decisive blow. In the interim, Tamerlane, who was on campaign for much of his adult life, was involved in Persia, which explains the delay. In 1395, though, he turned his attention back to the Golden Horde. In March of that year, he began an advance through the Caucasus, which he had previously raided to ensure his supply lines were safe. And after a month of travel, found Toktamish encamped at the Terek River. Tamerlane was actually in a potentially awkward position, as he needed to ford the fast-flowing river to give battle. He was able to achieve this, though, by the use of a trick. He had his camp followers dress as soldiers one evening, and while they remained in camp, the actual army marched upstream to successfully ford the river. With his force across, Tamerlane was able to force a battle. Although Toktamish retreated to gather his forces, on April the 22nd the two armies met. It was a closely contested affair. Tamerlane's flanks came under immense pressure from Toktamish's cavalry, but eventually he was able to smash through in the centre, and the Golden Horde army broke and was destroyed. Toktamish was able to escape, but his power was utterly broken at the Terek River. Tamerlane advanced onwards and devastated the major cities of the Horde, including Astrakhan and the capital Nusarai. Tamerlane also installed his own nominee as Khan of the Horde. Toktamish tried to seek aid from the Commonwealth of Lithuania, but he could never regain power, and eventually was killed by soldiers of Tamerlane in 1405, after suffering another defeat at the hands of one of Tamerlane's lieutenants, Edigu, the new leader of the White Horde. This was a severe blow to the Golden Horde, which really never recovered after the bruising defeats from Tamerlane, and in the 15th century began to splinter into a number of different states. The final things we need to talk about are Tamerlane's invasions of India and the Middle East. His capture of Delhi was one of the greatest military achievements of his career, something that even Genghis Khan did not manage. Although, as I mentioned, several of the later Chagatai Khans did raid deep into India. I haven't been able to discover exactly why he chose to attack India, but I think the most likely explanation is the lure of plunder. There's certainly no evidence he ever intended to occupy Delhi. He simply plundered and left. In September 1398, then, he crossed the Indus River on his way towards Delhi. As he advanced south, he sacked the cities of Multan and Tulamba, but found relatively little resistance from the Delhi Sultanate, who were slow to realise the dire threat approaching from the north. Tamerlane arrived at the walls of Delhi in early December, barely two months after crossing the Indus. 
and there the Sultan finally chose to make a stand, and on December the 17th the two armies faced off. Tamerlane needed to find a way to combat war elephants, a problem Alexander the Great had faced in his conquest of India. Tamerlane's solution was surprisingly ingenious. He chose to load his camels with bundles of sticks, which were then ignited. He then instructed his men to drive the camels towards the enemy elephants. The sight of the terrified camels, their backs aflame, apparently panicked the elephants, and they caused considerable confusion in the Indian army. That was all Tamerlane needed to rout the Sultan's force. Delhi and its fabulous wealth was in his hands. He looted the city and massacred thousands of captives before departing. As I said, he did not really intend to occupy the city, but he did leave a force in the area. Uprisings against these Turco-Mongol outsiders led to a second massacre of citizens by the enraged Tamerlane, which left Delhi a depopulated wreck for many years. Tamerlane's final great campaign was in the Middle East against the Mamluks and the new Ottoman Sultanate. Ostensibly he wanted to restore the Seljuk Turks to power, as they had been vassals of the Mongols, and Tamerlane therefore regarded them as the legitimate rulers of the region. In 1399, he marched on Syria, pacifying the Christian kingdoms of Armenia and Georgia on the way. As Hulag had done more than a century earlier, his armies stormed Aleppo and then moved on Damascus, which was subjected to a particularly brutal sack and massacre. After returning to winter in the Caucasus Mountains, Tamerlane turned his attention to the Ottoman Sultanate, a relatively new power in the region, who had taken a number of Tamerlane's fleeing enemies under their protection, something guaranteed to get the warlord angry. His expedition in Anatolia, modern Turkey, was characterised by the speed of his march across the country, all conducted in the heat of summer. He conclusively outmanoeuvred the Ottomans, getting behind their armies close to Ankara and capturing their camps. The threat to their cities forced Bayezid, the Ottoman Sultan, to march in pursuit during that summer heat. Tamerlane's armies, meanwhile, were able to recuperate, and the great general also tried his best to deny his opponents water by diverting the Ankara River and poisoning other water sources. By the time the Ottomans arrived, they were tired and thirsty. But without access to water, they had no choice but to mount an immediate attack on Tamerlane's rested forces. It was a huge battle. Estimates of the number involved vary wildly, but it's certainly possible that Tamerlane's force numbered several hundred thousand. The Ottoman infantry, although excellent, was no match for the Timurid cavalry, and they were cut down in their thousands. Bayezid fought bravely, but was captured as he tried to flee, and was brought in front of Tamerlane in a cage. He died three months later still in captivity. His death offers one of the great what-ifs of this period. 
had Tamerlane lived longer and placed his own nominee in charge of the Ottoman lands, the great Ottoman dynasty might never have flourished as it did. As it was, there was a decade of interregnum as the sons of Bayezid fought for power. After the crushing defeat of the Ottomans, they, as well as the Mamluks and the Christian Byzantine Empire, all submitted to Tamerlane's authority and agreed to pay tribute. Tamerlane, though, lived barely three years more. He returned to Samarkand in 1404, but fell ill in December of the same year on a journey to Otra. He died in February 1405 and was buried in a sumptuous mausoleum in Samarkand. His legacy is a complex one. He was a great patron of the arts, and the spectacular architecture he commissioned in Samarkand still stands today. He was himself a highly intelligent man, who spoke several languages, and patronised scholars in Samarkand, creating something of an intellectual renaissance in Persia. He was, though, also a man capable of exceptional cruelty, who devastated cities like Delhi and Damascus, and massacred prisoners and civilian populations at a whim. He was also not the equal of Genghis as an empire builder. While Genghis was always focused on conquest in pursuit of his universal empire under Mongol rule, Tamerlane at times seemed more interested in plunder than in conquest. He never established a unified system of governments for the Timurid Empire. It relied largely on his military genius to survive, and so it was never really fully stable after his death. By 1500, it had largely disintegrated. Interestingly, the most enduring Timurid state was the Mughal Empire in India, which was founded by Babur, one of Tamerlane's descendants, although India, of course, had never formed part of his empire. So while Tamerlane was not a direct descendant of Genghis, it is helpful to see his achievements alongside those of the Mongols in reshaping the political and economic landscape of Asia and Eastern Europe ahead of the modern age. He's a fascinating figure who has remained a part of the popular imagination to this day, in part, of course, due to Christopher Marlowe's famous play. By the time that the second seismic shock had worn off and Tamerlane's empire had split apart, most of the state that remained were those that would take the region through the early modern period, the Grand Duchies of Muscovy and Lithuania, in Eastern Europe, the Ottoman Empire in the former Mongol vassal area Anatolia, the Safavid dynasty in Persia, the Mughal Empire in India, and Ming China. So Tamerlane, a man who wanted so much to emulate Genghis Khan, fits into the overall narrative of conquest followed by consolidation that marked this period. With Tamerlane, though, we leave this period behind. But as I mentioned at the end of the previous episode, I'll be back in the autumn with a new podcast project, which I hope will be interesting and exciting and will have a historical theme. So stay subscribed and follow me on Twitter at Mongol underscore history 
and I'll keep you updated on what's coming next. Mm -hmm.